Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Let's welcome uh, Jenny Leonard. Uh, Jenny is a Bloomberg trade reporter. Uh, and Nick Collis. Nick is a co-founder of Data Trek Research LLC. Uh, and Nick is also a Bloomberg opinion columnist. Jenny, I just wanted to get your thoughts. I know President Trump uh, just now made some comments about trade, um, you know, suggesting that perhaps this September meeting may not happen. What is your sense of kind of the next couple of steps here uh, between the U.S. and China on trade? Yeah, look, that he said that the September meeting might be off is actually one of the things that I noted in my notebook as news, uh, because we've heard in when he escalated the tariffs last week up until now, the September meeting is on. We had, you know, Peter Navarro, Larry Kudlow, everyone reinforced that narrative saying the Chinese are still coming here. You know, we are doing what we're doing, but we're, we still want to go back to the table and we're hoping that China is going to make the ag purchases it promised. So the fact that the president now said, well, you know, if we don't have that meeting, um, then we're still fine. Uh, That's news. At the same time, I would say the president always is good cop, bad cop in basically the same sentence. So, uh, you know, the meeting might still be on and he just wants to basically play it both ways. So, um, yeah. Jenny, do do you have a sense of whether Trump's advisors are weighing in here on the moves that he makes when it comes to trade, or is this a complete unilateral kind of negotiation and uh, tactic? That's a good question. I think it always uh, depends. It's a case by case uh, matter. Uh, You know, for example, when you look at the the currency manipulator label, uh, there was there were meetings about this. You know, there were meetings about currency intervention. And we've heard different narratives coming out of the White House from Trump and his advisor, Larry Kudlow. And, you know, now we have Trump saying, no, he doesn't uh, want to intervene. We have, you know, Larry Kudlow and uh, Steven Mnuchin also meeting with tech CEOs, trying to kind of uh, find a path forward for the Huawei licenses. And that, again, was overruled by Trump, which he just um, confirmed the story that we wrote last night, uh, saying that there won't be any licenses coming uh, in the near future because China is holding off on purchases. So, you know, he definitely um, appreciates a, a vivid debate um, in front of him, but then it's always up to him. And we hear this from every single person we talked to in the administration. It's always up to the president. Um, so advice is, is, is you know, appreciated, but, <laughs> appreciated the- but not necessarily followed. So, Nick, well, I just want to get your thoughts here. I mean, how do you, it, it was clear just if you just look at the Nick trading. Collis. Nick Collis, yeah. Of uh, co-founder of Data Check Research. Which I entered. I introduced him before. Okay. Good. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so um, the so the sense, Nick, is just kind of how you think the markets. We just saw this week from trading up and down, up and down each day. Trade is really remains at the forefront of the market. How are you thinking that trade is going to play into the market going forward? Because it doesn't appear like we're going to get any near term resolution. No, I agree with that. And I would say that, you know, we're seeing a pretty typical pattern for the year in terms of volatility and in terms of narrative. So in the beginning of the year, we had the Fed announcing they changed their minds on rates, culminating in the July 31st rate cut. That story's played. We're done with the rate cut story in terms of supporting stocks. And now we're going to live and die based on trade negotiations because the other part of the equation with the discount rate for stock earnings is kind of off the table. So this is the one and only issue now. So I'm trying to figure out 
out how much of the trade tensions have already been baked into markets. Do you think that any sort of complete breakdown and lack of a deal is already in the price of stocks? I think that the majority of it is. We did a survey of our clients uh, just last week and asked them when they thought a trade deal would happen. And the majority said not until after 2020, after the elections. And these are all professional investors. So I would say that that expectation is largely baked in. What's not baked in is what impact that has on global growth in 2020, what impact that has on earnings in 2020, uh, and to what degree it further endangers, particularly Europe in terms of a recession. So, Jenny, I just want to bring you back and get a, your sense of, as we think about trade here, I know you follow this very closely um, down in D.C. Is this is the consensus growing that we won't get a trade um, deal till probably after the election? If you listen to the president and his advisors in the past couple uh, weeks and days, uh, it seems like it because he is really upset about the fact that you know, it seems like China is trying to wait him out and waiting for a, a Democratic president to come in and what he says, you know, get a get an easier pass on on a trade deal. And the president does have other tools in his arsenal that he hasn't used yet. So, you know, if the tariffs go forward on September 1, which he said will be 10 uh, percent on 300 billion, which is basically the remaining imports from China, he could still up that tariff rate from 10% to 25% or even higher, you know, and there's other um, tools that the White House has held off on uh, previously because, you know, they assessed their options and said, this is not the right time to do this. But those uh, advisors say could be back on the table. And that's, you know, something like sanctions on Chinese uh, surveillance companies that yeah. we've written about, you know, months ago and that were put on hold because it looked better uh, in, in the trade talks. And now it looks worse. So, you know, those could easily be back on the table. Jenny Leonard, we're going to let you get back to it. Uh, we really appreciate you spending the time. We know you're always busy trying to cover the uh, the progression of these trade negotiations. Jenny Leonard is a Bloomberg trade reporter uh, coming to us from Washington, D.C. Nicole is still with us. Nick, I want to get your sense of what the best trades are given this protracted trade war that could potentially deepen even further. What are the best assets to own right now? Okay, so thinking about volatility now for the rest of the year. So let's just talk about what's going to happen for the rest of 2019. It seems pretty clear that you're going to end for a pretty choppy period for stocks. Bonds are not necessarily a great trade because they've run so far, so fast, and so quickly. So unfortunately, you're not left with a lot of great options. Cash is one option. Reducing risk is one option. Gold has been working for a whole variety of reasons and probably should continue to do so because of negative rates in Europe. Uh, but there is just uh, not a great selection of choice aside from just reducing risk. Because as we saw today, as we've seen this week, you know the, 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 tr the whole st market story has flipped uh, and is now one purely about what's going to happen to the global economy economy in the face of trade wars. So Nick, even if you want to get a little bit defensive in the equity market, some of those classical defensive sectors, you know, they kind of bring in a valuation risk that you don't typically have historically when you, when you transition into those names. How do you kind of think about the defensive sectors, whether it's utilities or real estate? Yeah, that is exactly the right point. You know, the, the, the classic defensive plays are already extremely rich on a PE basis and even on a yield basis in some cases. And that's why it's hard to recommend any of them. I think if you had to put a finger on one, if you really made defensive utilities, 96% of revenues are in the U.S., so at least there's no international exposure, and you get a yield pickup. But aside from that, it's really tough. That's why, you know, we're telling clients just de-risk, take equity risk off the table. So here's the, the reason why I struggle with that. 
you've got all of these companies that have been buying back their shares and accelerating their purchases when the market does sell off, or at least that's uh, what Goldman Sachs analysts have been putting out there. Doesn't that provide enough of a technical boost that stocks are going to be fine? Public equities are going to be okay as long as there isn't a material deterioration. Yeah, two points. First, look at Q4 2018. Buybacks were very heavy last year. didn't help in Q4. Uh, Point number two is, you're right, I mean, net income... Corporate net income basically goes into dividends and stock buybacks and nothing else, which means that buybacks are directly correlated to stock and earnings. If you see earnings go flat, then buybacks go flat. If you see earnings go down 10%, then buybacks go down 15 because you still have to cover the dividend. So the, if that's the only leverage point, then it makes companies and stocks very beholden to earnings outlooks. And that hasn't been great this year. Down half a percent in the first quarter, probably flat in Q2, down in Q3, probably flat in Q4. So there's really not an incremental and, you know, it's a very good point, but at the end of the day, I still think back to Q4 of last year and think a down 15% S&P, it didn't really help because when the selling comes, as it did in December, there's not enough buyback firepower to support it. Real quick, 10 seconds, recession coming 2020? 50-50, a little bit less. A little bit less than 50-50, huh? Well, that's actually with consensus. I mean, you've got economists basically saying there's a 37% chance, I believe. Oh, is that what 37% chance of a recession in the next 12 months. I actually think that might be the number, according to a recent Bloomberg survey. My mind retains uh, ridiculous things sometimes. Nicholas, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Uh, Nicholas is co-founder of Datatrek Research and a Bloomberg opinion columnist. It is time where we check in with our Bloomberg opinion columnists and uh, in columns. Right now, we want to focus on the United Kingdom. We got some data out this morning showing the first or the first downturn, the first uh, decline in growth going back since right after the financial crisis. Therese Raphael joining us now, Bloomberg Opinion Editor covering European politics and economics. Uh, how concerning was this to you, this sort of UK data that came out? Well, I think to some extent this is uh, expected and part of a broader picture that shows that the UK is just underperforming and has been really since the since the Brexit vote, where you know a, a lot of people have noted, well, the economy hasn't responded as negatively as many predicted before the 2016 referendum, but really it's sacrificed a lot of potential growth, and now we're actually seeing some some real downside. Now that will affect Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, who has come to power both threatening to leave without a deal if the European Union doesn't agree to his demands, but also uh, delivering this message of optimism and uh, you know opportunity for the country once it leaves the EU. And this complicates the picture. And especially, as, as I wrote today in a column, it complicates his uh, you know, other big challenge, which is keeping the United Kingdom together, which is you know, four constituent nations, including Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. So, Tres, that's kind of where I wanted to go. Your column's fascinating. Give us the latest on kind of how that might play out, keeping the United Kingdom together. Well, the, the news this week was that for the first time in, in a couple of years, uh, the Scottish uh, people are telling pollsters that they would uh, prefer to leave. They want a second uh, a second referendum on Scottish independence. There was one in 2014. Now, Scotland would be hurt uh, quite substantially by Brexit to the tune of at least perhaps 8% of uh, of Scotland's um, uh, growth, uh, of Scotland's uh, GNP, if there were to be a no-deal Brexit. So, you know, you would expect this to accelerate 
demands for independence in Scotland. At the same time, you have Northern Ireland, where um, the Good Friday peace agreement allows for the possibility of rejoining Ireland, of having a vote to do that, if there is a majority for that. We don't see that yet now, but you could imagine a scenario in which the Northern Irish economy is hard hit, and that and there begins to be a clamor for uh, you know for what they call a border poll. I was interested to raise that the, uh, the FTSE was actually not that down. In fact, it pretty much was flat. I'm trying to understand why markets didn't respond more severely to this uh, this contraction. Well, I think there's been a big question for some time now why markets are so sanguine when you know the rest of us are looking at the picture and 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 you know wanting to to you know sort of run for cover because it really does look like we're heading toward a no deal Brexit. I mean, one you know possibility that there is a you know general strength in the UK economy. It has proved a very resilient economy. It's a you know it's a fairly large economy, the world's fifth largest. Um, you know, also we have a fair bit of um, you know of of bad news priced in already, uh, but uh, you know, obviously, you know, trading is, I, I think, quite quite thin in a lot of stocks. So, Therese, one of the uh, arguments in support of Brexit is that uh, an independent uh, UK would be able to forge uh, strong trade deals on its own, particularly with the United States. What is what are those Brexit folks thinking about now as they look at uh, the U.S. trying to negotiate on and off again with China? Um, does that strengthen your argument or weaken it? I mean, I think it's been a weak argument from the beginning for, you know, for several reasons. Um, you know, the, the, the UK is a minnow compared to the US, which is a whale on the, on the world Therese, uh, trade. thank you so much for joining us. Bloomberg Opinion columnist, Therese Raphael. Guess what? Treasuries are rallying yet again. Right now, 10-year Treasury yields are at the lowest since October 2016. Investors taking a look at the escalating trade rhetoric between the U.S. and China, taking a look at the disappointing PPI, the producer product uh, prices, uh, the pr uh, producer price index not coming in as high as expected and saying the Fed's going to cut rates. The question is, how much lower can yields really go? Joining us now to discuss is Scott Kimball. He is a portfolio manager of the BMO TCA. Core Plus Bond Fund. He is a portfolio manager focused on fixed income for BMO Global Asset Management with $252 billion under management. So, Scott, are you bullish on treasuries here even after the incredible rally we've seen? You know, I think what we found is that investors are, are rethinking the view on the treasury position. Uh, we've sort of always operated with the ideas as we got closer to zero that treasuries were just more fully valued. Uh, we've seen now with negative rates persisting uh, around the world that it's really very difficult to to make a call on overall portfolio duration. And we're more staying neutral, not so much out of bullishness, but out of the fact that, you know, with a very negative term premium and negative rates overseas, uh, it, it's very difficult to make a case against treasuries in this type of a, a market paradigm that we've entered. So, Scott, you've mentioned that um, you think the Fed has mishandled that mid uh that correction, that, that rate cut they just made. What do you mean by that? What do you think they should have done? Uh, our, our view going into this was if you're trying to stimulate, stimulate inflation, that their policy had been rather effective uh, so far and that the, the tightening cycle was very prolonged and it really allowed the economy to get a lot of traction on the street. Uh, the challenge, though, is that then when they reversed course, they used the term mid-cycle adjustment. So our, pr our preference was not to cut rates and not punish savers by lowering rates further, 
but rather to stay the course. But now they use the term mid-cycle adjustment. And if that means what we think they think it means, that should have been 50 basis points, not 25. 25 doesn't do anything to change bank activity. It certainly doesn't do anything to stimulate credit markets. It doesn't do anything to benefit the consumer. What All it's done is caused a forward-looking path for the Fed, if you look at it, to sort of have this escalator-like uh, decline back towards 1%, which is not the mid-cycle adjustment. That's not the policy they wanted to, to put in place. So the market interpretation and reaction uh, was not congruent with what their directive was. Do you think that inflation is dead, or do you think that people are underpricing the risk of inflation? Uh, inflation, for now, in our opinion, is not going to be uh, too much of a, of a challenge. You know, in our, our core plus fund, we've, we've exited most of our inflation-linked positions. And the challenge that we're, we think, it, particularly as it, as it relates to the Fed, is, is inflation over the long term will have mechanisms and times where it will accelerate. And we do think this expansion in the U.S., although it's been the most hated one in history, uh, is pretty durable. But the challenge is the old inflation model doesn't account for things like transparency and pricing. If you think about the power of, of, of transparency you have from just a smartphone, from a consumer perspective, uh, that's squeezing retail margins. It's causing uh, a, a, re- a recycling in the labor market away from retail. And all of that is very disinflationary. So for this, whatever's left in this cycle, we don't see inflation as a problem. So given where we are with your outlook for uh, the Fed and inflation, kind of how are you thinking about your allocation of investment grade and high yield and emerging markets, how do you kind of stack them? Certainly. Uh, I'll, I'll start off by saying an area that we're not focused on right now is emerging markets. Okay. Uh, the exposure to the global economy is already seeping into the U.S. corporate bond market enough that if you add emerging market debt, the spreads and yields there are not giving you, in our, our estimation, the, the, the uh, extra compensation you need to include them. Uh, high yield, we will acknowledge some repricing. Primarily, energy has opened up the door. If you've been watching a few bonds, that boy, I'd like to buy that at six, seven, or eight percent, but it's been yielding four, and now it's repriced. It is a good opportunity to to find some exposure. Uh, but on overall, in the way we're positioning our fund, is a focus on investment grade. Uh, the problem is when you talk high yield versus investment grade, people like to talk yield in one and spread in the other. So if we look at spread for both, the credit spread you're getting. Uh, for high yield does really isn't really accounting for uh, what could be some upward pressure on uh, on the default rate. Given this backdrop, are you trading more or less than you normally do? Uh, less, uh, much to probably the chagrin of some of our counterparties. <laughs> no, but this is interesting to me because it seems like a lot of people are in the same boat. It's sort of not not much incentive to really shift your portfolio around. I agree. So interestingly enough, if you look at our core plus fund, our our average turnover statistic is about forty percent. And we tend to, to take on positions with a 12 to 24 month kind of an outlook. Uh, but even now, uh, our turnover is probably lower. We're probably running closer to 25. And to your point, if you have a bond and you're comfortable with the story and it's giving you a yield premium, if you want to sell it, you have to replace it. And unfortunately, with where credit spreads have gone, you're looking at a you know 1.13% OAS yep. for the, the investment grade credit universe. It's, it's a pretty expensive time to buy from an all-in yield or spread perspective. Right, right. Scott Kimball, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Scott's a portfolio manager focusing on fixed income for uh, BMO Global Asset Management. He's based in Miami. He has a tan line for his sunglasses. That's how Miami this guy is. Uh, but he joined us I'm here in our Bloomberg jealous. Interactive. <laughs> jealous. <you can> say. <laughs> so he joined us here in our Bloomberg Interactive broker studio. We appreciate him making the trip up to the Big Apple, but I'm sure he's going to be jetting back to Miami uh, very quickly.
Well, I'm looking at some interesting data. The cost of a data breach has risen 12% over the past five years and now costs on average $3.92 million. And that's according to IBM. To dig a little bit deeper into the all issues cybersecurity, we welcome Wendy Whitmore. Wendy's a global partner and director for X-Force Threat Intelligence at IBM. She's based in Los Angeles. Lisa and I love that title, Wendy. Wendy, thanks so much for joining <laughs> us. Um, just give us a sense you know, kind of what are the biggest risks to organizations right now? Hey, Paul and Lisa. So, yeah, you know, having responded to some of the biggest breaches in the world over the past almost 20 years now, um, you know, I can tell you one thing is consistent, and that's that if attackers can find a way to make money from stealing data, they will. Um, that becomes problematic today because we're in a data economy, and a lot of people aren't familiar with the fact that the dark web actually represents the world's third largest economy, coming in at almost $6 trillion. So what that means is that attackers can leverage that as a forum to share information, to buy data, to sell it. So when we're looking at, you know, which organizations could be attacked, what are the biggest risks? Ultimately, if an organization has data that is of interest, that could be monetized in some way, whether it's a financial record or a healthcare record, for example, all of that information becomes very valuable in this type of dark web economy. And a lot of organizations don't necessarily think of that. They look at their organization, you know, as, as in their eyes versus how an attacker sees it in terms of kind of being a goldmine to potentially make some money. Paul, I'm going to force you to call me the director of X-Force Yield Intelligence, yes. because I think that, that um, that's going to have to be my title. Wendy, uh, you just got back, or you're actually, uh, you were on site at the Black Hat Conference in Las Vegas, which is the world's leading information security event. I just picture a whole lot of people who are incredibly paranoid by nature sitting around and imagining worst case <laughs> scenarios. What were the most you know, hotly debated topics there? Yeah, I think you've got an accurate picture in your in your head, Lisa. But um, I think kind of first and foremost is just the regulatory landscape, right? So we're looking at what is going on with these fines that are ranging from you know two hundred million dollars upwards of five billion dollars, and that really going to have a dramatic impact on our industry, but ultimately on the way organizations uh, from the CEO and board levels on down think about investing in cybersecurity, right? Will they continue to buy more cyber insurance? Will they allocate money for fines? Will they do things like uh, continue to invest more proactively in security? Um, I, I think all of those things will happen, but that's certainly a very hotly debated topic right now. So, Wendy, following the Capital One breach, definitely people raising the questions about the cloud and the security of the cloud. I think Capital One at one point was even suggesting, you know, touting that the cloud was more secure, but that may not be the case. How should we think about that? Well, you know, we've got teams of people on site responding to these attacks um, all over the world, and some of them are cloud-based and many of them are not. Um, the reality is that whether the data is in the cloud or not, I think the number one thing that companies still struggle with is actually knowing where their most sensitive data is and ensuring that they have adequate controls in protecting that, right? Um, at this point, specific to the cloud, about 43% uh, percent of attacks are related to misconfigured cloud databases. So that means that, you know, access is uh, freely available or there are some loopholes for an organization or for an outsider to get into that data. But the reality is the number one thing is if companies can understand where their most secure data or sensitive data is, they can secure it much more effectively. And at this point, most organizations just don't have the visibility needed to uh, answer those questions pretty quickly. Wendy, which industries are seeing the biggest uptick in cyber attacks? 
Yeah, great question. I mean, time and again, we always see financial services being attacked. Uh, one of the things that we found this year, though, is that transportation actually moved from number five to number two. So when we say that, we're talking about commercial transportation, aviation sector, certainly uh, travel uh, brands as well. And we're seeing a tremendous amount of attacks that are increasing in those. And you've certainly seen some, seen some fines recently in those sectors as well. So, Wendy, to what extent can our data ever really be secure? I mean, I, I think some people are just saying, you know what, you just can't do everything. How should we think about that? It's true. I, I think the reality is that it, um, the need to secure data is not just actually on the company side. It's also on the consumer side as well, right? So there are things that we as consumers can do to actually protect some of our more personal and sensitive data. And um, one of those things, for example, would be to make sure that if you're using, um, you know, financial banking uh, transactions, whichever uh, institution you're using, that you're using some sort of a two-factor authentication or multi-factor authentication. And the same thing with your social media sites, with your uh, email accounts, all of those are now pretty simple to manage, even for people who may not be as technical. That's really important. And the next thing I would say would be with password managers. So you can use that. So you're not kind of replicating, you know, um, I love my dog, for example, is your password for every site that you use. Darn, and, revealed and me. Using that. <laughs> Wendy, uh, you know, I want to go back to the image of a group of paranoid people sitting around and wondering what next could potentially go wrong in a worst case scenario. And I'm wondering... What do most of the people who are work in cybersecurity do? I mean, do they just eliminate their presences almost entirely from the web? Uh, you know, it's kind of almost the opposite. It really depends. There's certainly a group that's extremely paranoid that never has a presence. Um, but the reality is, for most people, not just cybersecurity professionals, but people around the world really need to kind of highlight their um, social media presence and their online presence for career advancement. And so the reality is that we have the same concerns everyone else does. Um, we may be a bit more paranoid than, than usual, but we're doing things like I mentioned. So making sure that we're kind of taking the extra steps so that it's a little bit more difficult. Um, the way we communicate that to our clients, um, and it's the same thing personal, is all about limiting the impact. So if I can make it an attacker take longer to achieve their goal, which is usually to steal, steal data from an organization or to steal it from me personally, and if I can buy more time um, along that way, that allows me more time to detect the attack, to defend against it, and then ultimately to limit the impact, which you know personally would be limit stealing of, of information, but on a business side, limiting the impact of a huge you know, theft, which translates to a tremendous amount of money spent. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, we uh, will always love having you on just so that we can say your title also because you give us fabulous information. Wendy Whitmore, Global Partner and Director of the X-Force Threat Intelligence at IBM, which is a fabulous, again, fabulous title. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.